Hello and welcome. I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this is another episode of Been There, Seen That. Welcome back to our 17th episode. This is going to be our first horror thriller episode, and today we're covering Hereditary. Now, I want to hear your opinions on Hereditary first, because we all know that I'm just obsessed with this movie. So take me a walk through your first experience watching Hereditary. What was it like? I actually don't completely remember the first time that I watched it, but I remember absolutely loving it when it came out and really thinking it was kind of genre defining for horror and the way that it's taking a direction because it's more of a slow burn and it's based in facts and not using such like cheap scares. I think one of the things that we see in Hereditary is almost a maturing of the horror genre. Would you agree with that? I'd agree with it. I think one of the things that makes Hereditary so interesting is that if you were to remove all of the horror aspects of this movie, it still comes down to a family drama. And Mm -hmm. Ari Aster actually mentioned that originally this was just supposed to be a family drama and his first horror movie was supposed to be Midsummer. But when he saw that there was perspective and all these different things that he could add to turn this into just a really unsettling picture, he did and he went there and that's what Hereditary ended up being. Exactly. And I think he talked about in one of the interviews I watched with him, it was how this was an exploration of grief and how grief kind of manifests itself. And I think adding that horror aspect to it really makes it all the more visceral. So when you're watching it, you're feeling these emotions so much more strongly that these characters are going through because you have that on edge and that anxiety and that like not knowing what's going to happen next. Right. I actually have a quote from him in one of his interviews. When we go down later into the plot, you'll kind of notice that everything's not spelled out for you. It's kind of just there. And he did that on purpose. His quote is, I kind of wanted to make a conspiracy film without exposition. And that means that the viewer is instead supposed to be learning about the plot along with the Graham family. And we're seeing these people kind of watch everything unfold around them. But there's that sense of not understanding what's going on that you're also figuring it out as the characters are figuring it out. You don't have that knowledge of what's going on. And that's kind of what adds to the eeriness is that sense of uncertainty. Right. And before we give anything away completely, I'll give you a spoiler warning now. We are going to be going into Hereditary in great detail. If you have not seen the film and plan on doing so and don't want that spoiled for you, we recommend you pausing here and watching that now. Anyway, going back to my first impression of it, I do remember at the very end of the film, kind of being like what is going on like what did I just watch and not really understanding it entirely I think this is a film that needs to simmer a little bit you need to think about it and really digest what you just watched I think hearing that now I understand how the plot is structured a little bit more because you don't have the exposition you don't know what's going on so it's at the very end that last scene we'll delve a little deeper into it when we get there but it is so confusing the first time you watch it and it kind of just comes like right out of nowhere it comes right out of nowhere but when you go back knowing how it ends you kind of (laughs) see a lot of foreshadowing and that's one of the things i really like is that on your first view you don't understand all of this is foreshadowing you kind of just take it as it is and then when you go back and know what's coming you see all these little clues that have been sprinkled throughout to tell you what's going on. Exactly. It's beautiful story writing. When I was watching this back right before we did this episode, I caught on all these things that I know that went right over my head the first watch. And I just 
I don't know, the, the way that the story is written, I have such a deep appreciation for Ari Aster and his writing. Like, he has some major skill. And for this to be his first feature film, bravo. <laughs> like, this is phenomenal for a first feature. My love for this film is actually what got me excited for Midsummer when it came out. And little did I mm -hmm. know the impact that Midsummer would have on my life. But <laughs> I adore that movie and I adore this movie. And I think that something you see in Ari Aster's work is that it's very brutal. Very brutal. But it's all so calculated that like he has you exactly where he wants you like every little horror detail and the things i mean we're going to talk about the pole scene but that is i think he was talking about how he wanted all of the horror scares in this to be emotionally justified rather than like jump scares so when you're getting to that scene with the pole it's so emotionally justified and the entire ending sequence you're emotionally there which makes it not just like a cheap thrill that's something you walk away from and like oh that was a spooky movie but this is like i feel sick <laughs> like i don't feel well so let's talk about the plot a little bit one of my favorite things that they do with this movie is they use a lot of the cinematography to kind of reflect how you're supposed to feel it's very claustrophobic feeling and I mean, mm -hmm. we open with a shot of the house and the camera pans around a room and then it shows you a miniature replica of the house and it starts zooming in on the dollhouse. And when I say it's a replica, I mean room by room. There are little figurines of the characters. And Ari Aster actually said that we are with these people who don't know what's happening and we're with them in their ignorance. And so when you're kind of getting that sense of seeing the real house and seeing the mini house, you're supposed to be getting this feeling that the family in this house, the Graham family, is being watched and controlled by a greater force. That's what the mini replica house is supposed to represent. It's supposed oh, to show cool. there's these forces beyond control that are controlling everything. And I mean, we'll talk about where the, you know, mini house replica comes into play because that's part of Annie's way of grieving and that's kind of her work that she channels mm -hmm. all of her energy into. But that's how we open. And so I really like that shot because seeing the house and then seeing it zoom into a smaller house and you zoom in on the replica house just for it to then cut to the real world. But it like it's seamless the way they do it. Like you're zooming in on it. And then I think it's um Alex Wolf's character, Peter. He's in bed, correct? And he's like waking up. Yeah. But it's it's just seamless. Like I watching this. I want to know how they did that, like how what kind of effects they used to like get that perfect. I know this was shot like entirely on a soundstage. They like built the house on a soundstage. It's not an actual house because they needed to like remove the ceilings and they needed to remove the walls and things like that so that they could achieve these effects. But man, and this is also a nod to Ari Aster because I think it was Tony Collette who was saying he's one of the best directors that she's ever worked with. And it's because he has had the shot list and every single look aspect of the film in his head for years before they even started filming. So going into it, I see how those shots like the opening scene have such a good payoff because they've just been marinating in his mind for so long and he knew exactly what he wanted and props to him for that. He just seems like such an amazing director to work with. And he went on to talk about how every scene in the first act of the film is used to show how closed off every member of the family is from one another. I mean, throughout the beginning of this movie, every time you see a family member, they're typically by themselves. I mean, you have Annie working on the miniature house. You have Charlie out in the treehouse. You have Peter in the bed. You have the dad downstairs. They're all kind of in their own world. And so one of the underlying factors of this movie is kind of a lack of communication in the family. And they use that to their advantage throughout. I mean, the cult uses it 
it to their advantage. But Mm -hmm. it's supposed to be a plot device that they use. So when strange things start happening to the family, it kind of makes more sense why they aren't on the same page on their attack plan. Because I mean, the dad thinks Annie's going crazy. Peter's just mentally unstable. So everyone's kind of at this different place when they start getting tormented by these hauntings. So I think that having them in their individual shots and doing their own things and not really communicating as a family unit is going to show you that they're not going to be stable to get through this. And they're not really each other's final measure of support, if that makes sense throughout. Because I mean, when they are grieving later in the film, that's what the cult uses to get closer to the family. Exactly. And so speaking of grieving, the first real scene that we get is opening on a funeral and it's the grandmother. Her name is Ellen. And she's just died. We open this on her obituary text. And so now we're at the funeral and we get this shot of this necklace, which is going to become very important later on because this is the the actual symbol of the demon that I'm not going to name because I don't want to invite that energy into my room. But Sean, you can provide that information later. (laughs) The demon's name is Payman. Thank you. Um, But yeah, so we have the demon symbol on the grandmother's necklace and then Tony Collette's character, Annie, she also has the same necklace on. So the symbol is something that's introduced right off the bat. Like we know that this is important. We have close up shots of it. And so after this funeral, I think it's really interesting because like everyone seems pretty okay. Like the death seemed like something that was, you know, kind of a long time coming. But I think this is really important because later on when we're going to see another exploration of grief, it's such stark contrast between the first presentation of mourning and grief as opposed to the second. And the opening funeral scene kind of shows Annie eulogizing her mother. And she mentioned some key factors here that when you go back on your second rewatch, that's kind of when you're going to be like, oh, there was meaning behind that. But in her eulogy, she's talking about how her mother was always distant from her. And at this funeral, she's seeing a ton of faces that she's never seen before. So she's kind of Mm -hmm. just like prefacing that her mother had this very secret life. But there's a moment where Charlie, the daughter, actually turns around and one of the people in the funeral just gives her this really creepy smile. And then she does this clicking noise with her tongue, like a little... Ooh, that was good. I mean, it's a it's a key plot device here. And we'll talk about the clicking when we get a little bit further. But again, you're in this funeral and you're seeing all these people that Annie and her family have never really been a part of. And Annie goes on later, she goes to a grief group. And so in her monologue in the grief group after the funeral, you kind of see her talking about how her relationship with her mother became estranged. And you learn some really important details that upon listening, you're kind of just like, that's disturbing, but it does have a deeper meaning to it. You learn that- I can't wait to get into that, yeah. You learn that her father died of starvation, and then you learn that her brother passed away at the age of 16 by suicide, and he was rambling on about how Ellen, Annie's mother, was trying to put someone inside of him, and they just kind of attributed it to him being crazy. So well, they sense- I don't want to jump ahead too far, but there's also another theory as to what that could have been leaning towards. We'll get there, I guess, when we get there. Yeah. <laughs> so back to the funeral, we, you know, we are introduced to all these random characters that end up actually popping up later, just like the the creepy man with the smile. But when we jump back to the house, I think this is the first instance where we see cryptic writing on the wall, and it's S-A-T-O-N-Y, and that's written on Charlie's room. And that's the first time that we're really going to see that, but it does come into play pretty extensively later. 
And it's it's not something that, again, maybe you would catch on your first watch. There are inserts of it, obviously, where it shows you pretty prominently. But if you look into the meanings of these words and stuff, it's got a lot of demonic weight to it. So which obviously is a huge point of this plot. And something that we see on the night after the funeral is Annie has this moment with Charlie where she goes into Charlie's bedroom and Charlie's kind of just lying there, not crying, not necessarily sad, but kind of just like there. Well, Charlie's a weird character in the first place, so. And there's a reason behind that. But I mean, they have a really important conversation, which is going to give you some more context into how really just messed up Annie's mother was. Because she goes on to talk about how when she first had Peter, she kept Peter away from her mother. This is back in the grief group, but it gets brought up when she's talking to Charlie because she mentions how she didn't want to have Peter. And so when she did have Peter, she kept him very far away from her mother. But then when Charlie came along, she decided to let her mother into Charlie's life. And that was a little bit of a boundary overstep because they go on to say that it was to the extent of like the grandma insisted on being the one to breastfeed her. The grandma was always at Charlie's side. So Charlie had this very strange bond with the deceased grandmother that Annie doesn't really understand and no one's supposed to understand at this point in the movie. You're just kind of there. And Annie also mentioned something really weird about Charlie, a little bit of a sociopath tendency. She mentions that Charlie didn't cry at the funeral. And then she says, you know, you've never actually cried. Even when you were a baby, you just sat there. You would never cry. Yeah, that's... And Charlie is just such a strange character. And I want to go into her a little bit, but... Before I do, I want to jump back and say that I'm pretty sure the dialogue is like Annie says she gave Ellen Charlie like she's like, oh, well, I wouldn't let her near Peter. So I gave her Charlie. And I just think that's like strange wording. And it makes you kind of question whether Annie knew or not what was going on. When we go down later in the plot, I'm going to bring up a point that discusses if Annie knew subconsciously, but not actually like knew We'll talk about it when we get there. There's a lot to unpack here. But yeah, it's Charlie is so strange and she like barely talks. And I, I know Ari Aster had her and Alex Wolf go on like kind of character building dates where they went to I think they went to a restaurant together. And then there was another one where he made Alex Wolf go with her to pick out like a sweatshirt and have to like guess. But she just my purpose for saying this is throughout that entire time she hardly spoke to him she like didn't use words like she doesn't verbalize a lot and charlie's mental age seems to be so much younger than she is did you did you get that feeling from her so it's revealed that she's 13 in the movie but i definitely mm-hmm. the way that it looks on the poster they make her look like she's this like 7 year old girl or something like that they always have her presence yeah. she's, like very much smaller in comparison to everyone so when i heard that she was 13 i was very much kind of confused i definitely thought she was a lot younger than that exactly and we'll get into it at the party scene as well but she just really can't take care of herself is the thing and i i feel like 13 you're a freshman in high school you're beginning to like want that kind of independence and she just doesn't have that she has like she's almost incapable of taking care of herself right so that's going to bring us on to the first day after the funeral and it shows charlie and peter both going to school And they both kind of have two very interesting days at school. Let's put it that way. First, Charlie is seen doodling in class and she's kind of just scribbling these really weird drawings. You learn that she kind of likes to build her own toys. And so she's making a doll at her desk as well. In her backpack, she has these little trinkets and she's putting together a doll. And her teacher is going around and sees that she's not taking her test and is like, let's maybe play with the toys after you take the test. And right as she says this, a bird slams into the window. Mm -hmm. The whole classroom jumps, but Charlie just kind of sits there and looks out at the bird. 
And you have this really disturbing moment where when they go out to recess, she goes up to the dead bird and takes a pair of scissors and cuts its head off. And I mean, it does show it all. But yeah. later but when that's she goes home. foreshadowing. It is. And she brings, the, foreshadowing. she brings the bird's head home to put it on her doll. But no one knows that she puts it in her pocket. So you're kind of already just like, wow, where is this movie going? We're in the first 10 minutes and that's happening. Right. And then there's Peter in his classroom and they're talking about Heracles. And I think this is, I love this part. <laughs> this is story writing at its finest. Like when Foreshadowing you really at its finest. Exactly. When you really delve into the script, it's moments like these where you're like, oh my God, yes. And I have this conversation written down. They're talking about, teacher says, what is Heracles' flaw? And one of the students says, arrogance. He says, okay, why? And the student says, because he literally refuses to look at all the signs that are being literally handed to him the entire play, which is pretty much just symbolic for how Peter handles the entire situation of what's about to unfold for him in his life. And the teacher actually goes on to explain that Heracles has the illusion of control in the story, whereas in fact, Sophocles was the one who wrote the oracle dictating what happened. So Heracles has an illusion that he has control over his choices, but he doesn't actually. And that's alluding to what we talked about in the opening scene where there's this presence that's in control of all the family members and they just don't know it. Exactly. And then there's this weird scene where we see the grandma at school. There's like a flash of her. So she's trying to get in contact with Charlie. And we had seen the grandma, like a flash of her the night she died as well. And it was in like Annie saw her uh, right before she went to bed. And it was at Charlie's recess when we see the grandma for the second time, Ellen. Um, and Charlie does her little again. It's a, oh man, it's like so unsettling when you like it's a, it's a genius way to kind of connect a sound to Charlie and it becomes such a huge, like, pushing forward of the plot later on. I mean, you just associate that with her so fast. And I think it's genius. And, like, you know, kids have tics like that. They'll, like, do weird things. And I, I think that's really, really effective. So then after school, we're now at nighttime. And Peter wants to go out to this party because this girl that he's been crushing on kind of was, like, giving him the illusion to come to the party with him. So mm -hmm. he tells his mom that he's going to go to the party and the mom tells him that he needs to bring Charlie. And he kind of is just like, Charlie, do you want to go to the party? And Charlie's very much against it. She just says, no, thanks. I'm good. And the mom's like, Charlie, you need to go and be social. And Charlie is very much like, I do not want to go to this party. But she finally just does it because she knows that it's easier to just succumb to it and go to the party instead of just arguing with her mother. So her and Peter set out on this party and the party is the scene that really changes the movie. But before that, right before we get to the party, when they're still trying to convince her, we see the grandma again outside. And this time she's sitting in like a rope of fire. And this is Charlie's vision again. So we're getting this connection where Charlie's able to see the grandma and Annie is as well, but neither peter nor steve have steve is the father i don't think we've named him yet but neither of them have yet so there's this familial link through the women and i think that's gonna come into play a lot later absolutely but so we're at the we're at the party now and <laughs> i have the poll written on <laughs> like in capital letters written in my notes because we passed the poll on the way to the party and it it's really it's a really cool shot it's like a good tracking shot following the car and then the the camera stops when the pole hits dead center and the car continues to pass and it kind of just stays there for a second. And you see the demonic symbol written on the pole that we've seen on the necklaces before. So that's kind of, again, foreshadowing to what's about to happen. 
So we get to the party. And prior to this, we've had a lot of conversation. Charlie's always eating chocolate, which is like weird. And they're always asking, are there nuts in that chocolate bar? That's right. a recurring theme in the first like 10 minutes. So she's always eating a chocolate bar. And there's always usually her mom or dad is like, are there peanuts in that? Because she has a peanut allergy. Well, nuts in general, because it's it ends up being walnuts. But they're always concerned about that. But they're like, they never have the EpiPen. That's the thing. Like, Charlie's so incapable of taking care of herself. They're always asking each other. Like, I feel like once a kid turns 13, you're not, you know, they should be able to be like, oh, I can't have nuts. Like, let me be careful about that. That could kill me. Right. And I mean, Charlie is the one that kind of is giving herself the candy bars. She's eating one at the funeral. And her dad's like, oh, where did you get that? Well, are there nuts in it? As long as there's no nuts in it. Mm -hmm. So Peter sees the girls that he likes. Oh, we also get a close up of one of the girls who's i'm assuming hosting the party chopping like a ton of nuts like we see all these nuts a on the ridiculously amount of yeah nuts. and i i think it's like over exaggerated to just make a point like there's no there's no way they're using that many but it's just you know did you get it did you get it we're doing like a little fitzgerald thing here it's like here's the symbol did you did you see what i did there? we've been talking about nuts since the opening scene and there yeah. are nuts in this scene pay attention Honestly, yeah um, so Peter sees the girl that he likes and she's like, oh yeah, there's, there's a bong in another room. Like, cause he asked her to go smoke with him and he's trying to get Charlie off his back because Charlie again is incapable of doing literally anything by herself. And she's just super weird, like can't socialize for anything. He's like, oh, Charlie, they have cake. Go get the cake. It's not for me. And he's like, no, it's for everyone. Just go stand there. And so she goes over to get the slice of cake. And that is where the movie kind of takes a turn for the worse um there are walnuts in the cake and so peter's little smoke sesh is very very abruptly interrupted because charlie comes in and she's just like i can't breathe i really am having trouble breathing which she's gasping and it is so eerie like oh hearing her try to breathe is so unsettling it's insane and so peter right away knows something's wrong so he goes oh my god charlie and so they run out to the car And he's going to take her to the hospital because, of course, he doesn't have the EpiPen. So we're Mm -hmm. on this drive to the hospital, and Peter is speeding down the road. Charlie's in the back seat fighting for her life. She can't breathe, and she's, like, squirming around in the back seat, kicking the seat. She just is not having a good time. She's gasping for air, and Peter's kind of trying to comfort her. He's like, Charlie, don't worry. We're almost at the hospital. We're almost there. We're almost there. And all of a sudden, Charlie rolls down the window to try and get some airflow into her lungs. So she's sticking her head out the window. Peter sees a deer a dead deer in the middle of the street and swerves to miss it. But it's right next to that pole that we saw as we were going to the party. Mm -hmm. And it's in this moment that you see Charlie's head make contact with the pole as he swerved and Charlie is decapitated. Oh my God. This scene is so good. And just a little going into the technical part of it. When they were filming this scene, they obviously had a stunt driver going for it and some kind of like rig with like prosthetic, head or something but apparently the driver nailed it like on the first shot and Ari Aster said it was so good but it was so gruesome we have like three seconds of that shot because it was so much but that that scene is so cool and you kind of see her head leave her body I mean it's a very abrupt flash I think that's the shot they were talking about where it's just like a couple seconds of it like you barely get enough to understand what's going on Right. But I mean, you do circle back to it. So Mm -hmm. once the head makes contact, Peter slams on the brakes and just sits there and the camera is just on his face. And you can (sighs) kind of see the shock, the 
fear, the sadness, just all of these different emotions in his eyes. And he's just sitting there. He doesn't know what to do. And he goes, you're, you're okay, Charlie, right? You're okay. You're okay, Charlie. And then like, mm-hmm. he can't bring himself to look into the back seat because I mean, at that point, it's just going to be a headless corpse. I love that we sit in this close-up shot of him for so long because it's like the same you're put in the same position he is like you don't want to see but you have to see like you have to know and so eventually it pans up to the rearview mirror for like half a second and he it follows his eyes right back down and you see him slowly drive away and then pull into the driveway park the car get out and go lay in bed and then we just have a camera shot on his eyes until the morning when you hear the mom and the dad wake up and the mom's like, I'm going to go run some errands. And then you just off camera hear her scream and just Ugh. Tony Collette. It Tony still Collette. amazes me how oh, rudely man. she was ignored during award season for this movie. I just disgusting the snubs that she got because this acting is so beyond like what I can comprehend. We've talked about Tony Collette before. She's literally one of my favorite actors. I know you love her too. And the way that she just takes command of a character and makes it her own, like she's, this is so good. And that, that scene, it's like, you only hear the audio of what's going on. You don't see her. You're still a close up on Peter's face from the morning. And it's just her sobs. Literally, they haunt me. Like, the noises that come out of her. And then there's that, it shows that shot of her. So we go from, we go from the audio of hearing Annie screaming while having this close up on Charlie. And then it cuts to the head just covered in ants. And then we cut back to the house and um, that scene of Tony Collette, just like rocking back and forth. Like she can't stand still or sit still. And, um, Steve is just, he has his arm over her. He's trying to comfort her, but like, oh my God, the screams, like, I will never forget that until the day I die. I feel like I witnessed that like happening in real life. She's just a total knockout. Amazing. And you see her grieving. It very much reminds me of the scene in Midsummer where they're all screaming, but yeah. imagine if it was just one of them. It's very much that level of a scream. It's just this pain that you can hear in her scream. And you cut to this really cool scene where they're showing Charlie's funeral, but it shows them grieving. And then the camera kind of goes down almost like it's on an elevator, but it goes down into the ground as if it's being buried Mm -hmm. with the casket. And then it just cuts back to the house. We get another um, weird cryptic carving on the wall. It's this one Z-A-Z-A-S. I don't know. I don't want to say any of these words because I'm really, uh, I don't, I don't like to mess with that stuff, but this is all like demonic stuff. So we're getting more carvings on the wall. And then this is the second time that we see a red light in the treehouse. And the treehouse is going to become very important later. We've had a few shots of it at this point. But this time it's Annie sleeping in the treehouse because she can't stand to be in the house anymore. And I think it's important to bring up that Charlie in the opening shot that we are introduced to her is sleeping in the treehouse. And Annie is kind of like, you can't sleep up here, Charlie. You're going to get sick. So Mm -hmm. once Charlie dies and you see that Annie goes up to the treehouse every night to sleep, it kind of shows you that she feels almost this bond with Charlie when she's there. Interesting. I wonder if that has anything to do with the passing of the spirit. I think it does. Yeah. Okay, cool. I'm glad we're on the same page. I like definitely want to talk more about that later, but I want to... Let's let's set the tone. <laughs> right. So we're seeing Charlie's drawings and like 
The last one she drew was, it looked like a king pigeon. Like, it looked like a pigeon with a crown on it, which ends up being symbolic later to, like, the last shot of the film. And it also has a throwback to the bird's head that she cut off in the beginning. Uh, yeah, so this this whole plot is just so beautifully tied into each other. And one thing that Charlie's death really brings out is the family's dynamic of being separate because we see how Peter and Annie deal with it. And Annie kind of holds a secret resentment towards Peter, although it's never directly stated until the dinner scene. But mm-hmm. she definitely kind of is giving him a cold shoulder and you can feel a tension between them two. And so that causes Peter to go into a big wave of depression and kind of guilt for what happened. And the dad's trying to kind of mediate peace between the two of them, but it's just not really doing anything because Annie has no interest. She kind of definitely blaming Peter without blaming him. And Peter is grieving with the guilt that he did that to his sister. So that plays into when the cult makes their move on the family, because as everyone usually knows, grief kind of breaks you down mentally and makes you very easy to be taken advantage of. Exactly. So speaking of grief, we're back at the grief group and Annie's not walking in, but then we're introduced to this character, Joni. And she says, the first time she says, my daughter was killed. I think that's a really defining moment for Annie's character because instead of choosing to say my daughter died or my daughter died in an accident, she says my daughter was killed, which immediately puts the blame onto Peter. And it makes you kind of see how Annie's seeing Charlie's death. It's She really does, like you said, blame Peter. And she's kind of keeping that to herself and not admitting it. And Joni gives Annie her phone number and says, you know, if you ever need to talk. So she kind of pockets it. And we don't see it until a little bit later on. But then we, I think this is really cool. There's a close-up shot of the mailbox and coming in through the mailbox is a flyer that just says open seance which brings us into annie visiting Joni for the first time so annie decides to take joan up on her offer because she wants to kind of see what's going on with this and she wants to connect to charlie because she mentions that she lost her grandchildren a while back and that she's used this seance to communicate with them so annie at this point just wants to talk to Charlie because as any grieving mother would, she thinks it's going to help her kind of get through that and fill the void that's now missing in her life. So she decides to go over to Jones and attempt the seance. When they do the seance, at first they're summoning Jones' grandchildren and it works. They're talking to him through a chalkboard. Stuff begins to move. Can I bring up a point right here? Yeah. (laughs) So that that scene was actually incredibly difficult to try and get right but one of the things Ari Aster did that like props to him for is all of the effects he tried to do as many practical as he he possibly could and use as little VFX as he could so for that they had like a little magnet that was inside of the chalk and so they had a magnet on the other side like trying to draw the chalk but apparently it was really difficult to do and it took a while to get right but I think it's it looks really cool and I'm glad that that wasn't a VFX shot because I I feel like you can tell. I think that when you have practical effects in a movie like this, like you mentioned, you can tell it definitely adds to the eeriness because when you add it is real. Yeah, it is real. And when you add effects like that and when it is obvious and I mean, in horror movies, when they use effects, it's usually very over the top. You can definitely Mm -hmm. tell when it's been tampered with. And I feel like it kind of just takes you out of it. Whereas with hereditary and I mean, up until this point, It's been more disturbing than actually scary. And this is kind of that first sense of, you know, a darker presence being in control. Supernatural. Yeah. I think uh, an important point about this scene as well is right when she comes in, 
Annie says, you're welcome, Matt. My mother used to embroider ones like that, which ends up being very, very important later on. I feel like <laughs> we keep saying that, but everything really culminates at the very end of this film. And again, you realize, I know we've said it probably like three or four times in this episode, but when you go back on a rewatch and you hear that, you're like, that was the clue. These mm-hmm. are different clues scattered throughout, and this is what's happening. So if you've only watched this once, I definitely encourage a rewatch, especially Highly if you didn't recommend. really think that it sat with you. I think a rewatch might change your mind on that. Definitely. And another little seed that they plant here is Joan asks about Annie's relationship with Peter. She says, how's your relationship with your son? But it's it's totally out of nowhere and it has kind of nothing to do because they were talking about Charlie and that's what Annie wanted to talk about. But she says, you know, how's your relationship with Peter? Very weird. Comes into play later. But she tells that story about, I'm just going to kind of breeze over this because we'll get into it deeper later, but she tells the story about how she used to sleepwalk and one time she woke up and had covered Charlie and Peter and herself in paint thinner and woke herself up by striking a match. Right. And that's one of those plot aspects that I kind of attributed to showing that Annie was aware that a force was at play here, even if she didn't know. Like, I think her subconscious Mm -hmm. was like, this is what's going on. So I think that's why they kind of play with the sleepwalking. And so we'll have to talk about the plot twist, the final twist a little bit more to understand this. But essentially, the overall plot of this movie is that they were trying to find a vessel to put this demon into So it's believed that Ellen in this cult is trying to find a host. And supposedly you're led to believe that it's going to be a member of this family. So I think that mentioning that Annie almost decided to light her children on fire through sleepwalking is kind of a way of them saying that subconsciously she knows that she needs to protect her children. She's a mother protecting her children. And she was kind of trying to put them out of this so they wouldn't have to succumb to it. And I mean... It also goes back to the brother committing suicide because he didn't want someone to be inside of him. And and so they attribute it to schizophrenia with her brother. But for me, it's kind of like hearing all these different things that Annie's done over the years, you're led to kind of wonder, and throughout the whole movie, really, is Annie actually crazy? Is this all in her head? Or is this actually happening? And people are just not believing her because of her mental illness in her past. So I think having that moment, like I said, really kind of shows that she's this mother and whether she knows it or not internally, her subconscious definitely is aware of what's happening and trying to kind of take action for it. Exactly. Which is going to put us into, we're back at the house again. And Annie is in her room making a miniature of Charlie's death. And Steve walks in on her doing that and is like, Annie, what? This is messed up. Like, you can't do this. And it's, I think that's the moment you realize that's kind of her way of dealing with grief and her, like, outlet of sorts. Because she's doing this for some sort of exhibition. So it is going to be on public display. But I think at this point, it's kind of become just something that she needs to focus on and how, like, a way to process. It's very much therapeutic in nature. Exactly. But that brings us down to the dinner scene, which we talked about before. and. If we haven't seen acting up until this point, this is going to give it to us. The scene is phenomenal. It's just this high stakes dinner scene where the three members of the family are sitting at the table and it's almost in silence. But all of a sudden, you kind of have this outburst between Peter and his mother because, like we mentioned, there is that ongoing tension between the two of them. And Peter thinks that his mother hates him. And his mother, of course, is like, I don't hate you. And then 
they get into this bickering match, which eventually escalates into Annie just having this outburst. And she's like, don't you swear at me, little shit. I am your mother. And Mm -hmm. goes on to this whole monologue about how Charlie's death could have at least brought the family together, but it's just a waste now because it's doing nothing but driving them apart and how she thinks that Peter needs to apologize and he just acts like he didn't do anything wrong. And so you see this really just breakdown moment for Annie and Peter's character because Peter just breaks down at the table and starts crying and Annie is kind of just going at it and you realize that she is officially unhinged. She just does not care anymore. Exactly. Like that scene, I think we have, this is kind of launching us into another act of the film. Like this is, that scene is a breaking moment. And so we actually skipped ahead a little bit before. (laughs) Sorry about that. But this is when we actually get the seance at Annie's with her grandson. And on the way back from that, Annie hears on the drive home, like right behind her. And it makes her like stop the car. And then there's ants on Annie's pillow and then ants on the window as she's trying to sleep. And then there's ants all over Peter. We realized she was sleepwalking. Um, And so Peter wakes up and he admits that she didn't want to have Peter and she tried to have a miscarriage, which again kind of like lends to the fact that she knew she was having a son. She didn't want to have a son because this demon that they're trying to summon needs a male host as its body. And so she never says that she tried to have a miscarriage with Charlie, possibly because she was a girl. It's never really stated, but one thing that she actually does is she says, I wasn't trying to kill you. I was trying to protect you because Peter, when he's hearing all this, is like, Mm -hmm. you tried to kill me. And so I think that line, I wasn't trying to kill you. I was trying to protect you, is when you kind of realize that her subconscious is very aware of what's going on, even if Annie herself isn't. And so, again, you have that moment where kind of protective mother overtook her instincts there. And so through her pregnancy with Peter was her attempts at having a miscarriage just her really subconsciously trying to protect Peter, but not realizing that that's what it was. Yeah. But then we get again, this here's the lighter fluid scene again. However, she wakes up and she's never left bed. Like this entire scene was a sleepwalk sequence. And so Annie now wakes up everyone in the middle of the night to get ready for a seance. And she kind of has this moment with Peter. That's really important because she goes up to him and she's just like, Peter, I'm so sorry for everything. I didn't mean it. And I feel awful. And so that's kind of that, mending the bond moment that you have from the dinner scene because again tension up until this point in the movie between peter and annie has been so tense and it's just finally kind of broken you kind of see finally a mother-son relationship between the two of them so when they go down to the seance at first they're all skeptical and the dad's like this is ridiculous you need help but peter's the one that kind of is just like you know what if you believe this mom i'll give it a try and that's what convinces the dad to stay yes so we're down at the seance and they're they're thinking they're like she's acting crazy she's acting wild but like they go along with it and then charlie ends up showing up you know not physically but she kind of assumes the body of her mother and speaks through annie and you have these like crazy moments where you know everyone's freaking out because charlie's there and it's it's very clearly charlie and so playing around with the spirit realm is really like etched into the plot right now like there's there's no more denying it like that's what's happening and charlie just essentially possessed her mother's body which is really messed up but it's it's a crazy scene and so as we're leaving that scene we we get another carving on the wall which roughly translates it's like a mix of hebrew english latin 
<laughs> I'm not going to say it out loud because, <laughs> again, spooky. Um, but essentially, the word translates to, like, open up for the demons of hell. And so we're really, we're really getting, you know, rolling at this point with the demon plot. And I think that a big thing when Charlie possesses her mom is that you hear her voice and she's just as scared as they all are. She's like, what's mm-hmm. going on? I don't understand what's happening. Where is everyone? Why is everyone scared? So you kind of see that Charlie's spirit has just been floating around and she's just as terrified as everyone else in the afterlife. So you kind of have the presence that Charlie is also not the one behind all of these. And you see Charlie's sketchbook. That's what they use to actually summon the demon. You see Charlie's sketchbook start filling with these drawings and the drawings are of Peter, but the Mm -hmm. eyes are crossed out. And one big thing that's important to note is that typically... The phrase goes that the eyes are the windows to the soul. So in the drawings, there's scribblings all over the eyes. And so you're Mm -hmm. kind of getting that preface that Peter's soul is what they want here. And so Annie, seeing these drawings, finally is like, this isn't Charlie. This is a malevolent spirit, and we need to get rid of it. So she decides to take the book that they used to summon Charlie and throw it in the fire. But as soon as she does that, she starts to kind of burn up with the book. Her sleeve catches fire as the side of the book starts to catch fire. And she realizes that whatever happens to the book, whatever the spirit is, is also going to cause it to happen to her. So she takes the book out and decides to kind of just leave it as it is. But she turns to Joan. And this is kind of where you start to get an explanation of what's been going on. I love this scene because it opens with one of those those shots that follows you from like upside down and then you follow it like as it kind of takes a roll to, to where you're like right side up and you're following her. Oh my God, I love those shots. They're so effective. But it kind of creates that like rolling anxiety that I don't know what's going on. So you're following her in her like quest and Joan doesn't answer the door but we see her apartment covered in like drapes we see the necklace symbol again the demon symbol um charlie's toy that she was creating like we talked about before uh how she like makes toys and stuff was on the seance table and then we're also cutting this in between scenes of peter in class and peter is not doing well but we see Joni yelling at peter trying to saying like i expel you i expel you while he's at school and another thing to note is that the mom also realizes while she's trying to get into joan's house that the rug is something that her mother made it's not just something that looked Mm -hmm. like it she takes the rug and she goes back home and she's rummaging through these boxes of her mom's stuff and she sees these pictures in this journal and that's where she kind of realizes that her mother was already friends with joan and this whole cult and she's seeing all these pictures again of all the people she didn't know and of all these different seances and rituals that they had going on and she finally comes across a text and it explains what payment is and how payment is this demon that you basically conjure up and he's supposed to reward you with riches as long as you find him a male host so that's Mm -hmm. supposed to be kind of painting the picture of everything that's been going on you're led to believe that ellen is kind of the head of this cult with joan and some of the other friends and that through this whole process, it's been an attempt by the cult to just get Peter to give up his soul so they can put payment into his body. Exactly. And an important shot that we get up here in the attic is that the grandmother's body is laying up there because prior to this, Steve, the husband, had gotten a call saying that her grave had been dug up in the middle of the night and her body was missing. But he had never brought it up to Annie because he thought it would upset her. But now we see the body 
upstairs, decapitated the same way that Charlie didn't have a head. And above the body, the demon symbol is painted on the wall in blood. So then we cut back to Peter at school. And like Catherine mentioned, has not been doing well. But this is kind of where it just takes a turn for the worse. He starts having these like hallucinations. And you kind of just see him sitting there. And it looks like he's having a seizure almost. His arm goes up as if he's seizing. And you kind of see his face morph into Charlie's face. And then he just does. so contorted. Yeah. He just does like a tongue click. And then just slams his face into the desk. But then starts like screaming and crying. Because obviously that woke him up. But it resulted in him breaking his nose. And something I actually read about filming for that was that Alex Wolf, I guess, was very willing to break his nose for the <laughs> for the purpose of the movie. And Ari Aster, although flattered, was like, that's not necessary. And so they put like a soft padding down, but it ended up still getting injured because I guess Alex overestimated how soft the pad was. Yeah. So he still slammed his head into the desk and ended up dislocating his nose. Right. Well, it was his jaw he dislocated, but that was from like a prior injury that he had. So it wasn't, I mean, could have been worse. At least he didn't actually break his nose. But yeah, that scene is horrific to watch because like contortion is the only way I can explain what he's doing with his body. It's so unnatural and it's it's like really, I'm going to use the word unsettling again. That's the word of the day. (laughs) Well, I mean, in common demon lore, they use contortion and like body mutilation to kind of like weaken who they're trying to get because like we mentioned when you're grieving or when you're injured or when you're just when you're just down you're much more easy to succumb and so this is kind of the cult taking over and trying to get peter's body ready to host payment yeah exactly so he wakes up screaming and then we cut back to annie who throws the book in the fire so she tries to throw the book in the fire again after she's having this fight with steve and Steve ends up catching on fire. And so he's burning up, essentially just burns to death, unfortunately. But Annie's screaming, and then, oh my God, here we go with Tony Collette again. It's like the screaming, and then this overwhelming sense of calm comes over her face when this blue light, this blue light has been following Peter the whole time, which I assume is the spirit of the demon. But the blue light comes over her, and as soon as the light shines over her face, she's just calm. And there's this orange light in the treehouse when Peter wakes up in bed. They had picked him up from school, but he wakes up in bed and there's an orange light in the treehouse. So this is kind of where you get what I would deem the scariest part of the movie because, again, Annie's possessed. And for me, whenever any character is possessed, I'm always on the edge of my seat because I don't know what's going to happen with possession. Mm -hmm. Nothing's off the table. But Peter's walking around the house kind of trying to figure out what's happening because, again, his father isn't answering his mom's possessed so he goes downstairs and sees the corpse of his burnt up father and you see this shot and it's tony collette and she's just perched up on the ceiling right behind him and it makes you feel so uneasy because you really don't know if she's about to lunge down and kill him and then you see her kind of like float away yeah it's like so she was also crawling on the walls behind him in a shot prior to this and i think this is again so emotionally justified like we've done so much building to get to this point and you know that there's actual tension between i mean that she's at this point she is possessed but her body her the mother and the son there's so much emotional tension between the two of them so i think he hit it right on the nail when he said everything has an emotional payoff to it and it's not just a jump scare but i mean we do get jump scares later but um then we also see in the corner the man from the funeral 
completely naked. We're going to get into a bunch of naked people now. So there's like, we're revealing several naked people like around the house and in the yard. And they're all just kind of standing there waiting for Peter. And then we cut again, Annie being possessed starts to chase Peter. She floated away, but she's back. So then we actually see Peter run up to the attic again. He's kind of not really sure what's going on. He's seeing these naked people freaking out, not sure. And we see Annie just floating up in the attic and she's using this piano wire to behead herself. She's just sawing through her head. It's again, really gruesome. And Peter's just kind of standing there in shock. But right as her head rolls, the light just goes over to Peter. Mm -hmm. And then we, we get a cut back to the treehouse again. And Annie literally floats up to the treehouse. Like now we're getting really supernatural here because she just lifts off the ground right up into the treehouse. And then you hear Peter again. And it's like the spirit of Charlie, Peter, like this whole hereditary, <laughs> this whole familial line is kind of joined in this one ceremony now, like with the living and the dead. And you see everyone naked in the treehouse. I think the women are clothed, if I'm not mistaken. The, the family's clothed. The Ellen, family is. Ellen, Annie, and Peter. And Peter. They're all clothed. Nobody else is. But that's because we see this shot of Ellen and it's like Queen Ellen. So I'm assuming they're royalty. They have specific rights in this. Um, I'm guessing they're the head of the cult. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Because, you know, Queen Ellen. But then we see the, I'm going to call it a mannequin that's supposed to be the manifestation of the demon that they're trying to summon. Um, It's kind of like a temporary host almost, but they're bringing Peter up to him and somebody places a crown on his head. And this is interesting because Joan calls him Charlie and says, Charlie, it's all right now. So that's kind of the end twist that we realize here is that all along the spirit of payment was put into Charlie. So you're led to believe that originally they wanted to put the spirit in Peter But because Annie was so possessive over Peter and didn't let Ellen near him, they kind of just used Charlie in the end. But the end goal was to get payment into a male host. So the bigger picture here is that everything that's happened in this movie has been something that the cult caused. They caused Mm -hmm. Charlie's head to fly off. That's why you see the symbol on on the pole. They were probably the reason that the deer was there. I mean, it's a back road that they take. So I'm guessing that's the only route to go to and from the party. The whole twist is that no one was in control except for the cult through this entire movie. Exactly. And I think another another point to this going back is that pigeon drawing we were talking about before, the one that looked like a pigeon, like a king pigeon, is almost an exact mirror of the last shot we get of Peter's face because his nose is broken and bandaged up, make it almost look like a beak kind of, and he has the crown on him. So it's like you get that king pigeon moment. It's really interesting. But another important point of this is that we end panning away from a miniature. So it's like, I love those caps on either side of like the film. They're like bookends. It's like you start with a miniature, you end with a miniature. And I almost feel like there's something to read into there. I haven't like given it a ton of thought. I definitely believe all of this happens in what's supposed to be the real world. So that's why I kind of don't know if there's deeper meaning to that. But I, I love those cap ends to the film. I think it really ties it off nicely. 
you know, the miniatures, as we mentioned in the beginning of this episode, really are used to symbolize that there is a bigger controlling factor here. I think that the thing that makes Hereditary so scary is showing you how many things are beyond your control or that you could inherit from your family but not even know about. And again, you don't have that sense of control on it. You kind of just have to take it as it is. In this case, it's a presence of evil, but it doesn't really matter because no matter what they do, it's still going to follow them. It's hereditary. Exactly. Love that. So where would you put this on a scale of one to 10? Because I know that this isn't a typical horror movie for some people. Right. I'm going to give it an 8.5. I love this movie. I think it's beautifully shot. I think, and this is, this is an interesting point. I think it's the perfect length. And in an interview, Alex Wolf said that this film, had they kept it as it originally was, could have pushed three hours. And going back to the films we've talked about before and like, you know, we talk about where would you cut things? I think they cut everything exactly how it needed to be. I felt satisfied by the end of it. There was nothing I was like, oh, I wish we had had more of these two characters talking or whatnot. I, I think they did such a fantastic job like paying homage to horror, script writing, story writing, editing, like everything is just gorgeous here. I think we have a beautiful film. And they do a really good job at sprinkling those Easter eggs and pieces to, you know, make sure you get the bigger picture by the end throughout. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably why you got a decent runtime and not having oversaturation is because they only kept what's important to the plot and the twist. They want to make sure you get it without spelling it out for you exactly where would you put this one to 10 i'm with you i'd put it between an 8 or 8.5 i'll sit with 8.5 because this is one of my favorite horror movies it's Mm -hmm. definitely incredible that this was ari aster's first like big feature for everyone and insane i'm sure we'll eventually do a midsummer episode but when we (laughs) talk about midsummer and looking at it as a companion piece to Hereditary, there's a lot of similarities that you'll notice throughout, but there's also a lot of differences. And I think that Ari Aster as a director really likes to kind of capture the horror of not being in control of something. Exactly. I think that's a perfect way of putting it. And I I think when you said like a companion piece, it they almost draw on... This is so funny because I started reading this like fact about the film and how they advertised it. But and immediately made the connection before they even finished the sentence. When they were marketing this, you know, Millie Shapiro was like a big part of their marketing. You know, you expected her to be a main character and she is. However, she's killed in the first third of the film. And the first time we'd ever seen that happen was with my guy, Hitchcock. I don't think I've talked about Hitchcock too much on this podcast before, but literally like my favorite director, aside from Darren Aronofsky, we're going to be doing some Hitchcock later. But that's how they marketed Psycho was... Janet Lee was marketed as the lead and it was unheard of to kill your lead off in the first third. So I think that was a nice like homage that they threw in there to like classic horror. Oh yeah. And I mean, it's just like Scream 2 where they frontline Drew Barrymore as the lead and she gets killed in the first scene. Exactly. <laughs> Spoiler alerts. But, <laughs> but yeah, I think this is honestly a turning point in horror. I think we're seeing things take these emotionally justified routes. And I think Ari Aster just absolutely nailed this, especially as his first film. Like, I I couldn't believe that. I didn't know that going into this. Yeah, I definitely agree. And he has gone on to become one of my favorite directors. So Hereditary will 
always hold a special place in my little horror heart, but yeah. I think we are out of time for today. So I'm going to go ahead and say, if you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to go ahead and follow us at BTST podcast on Instagram or Twitter. And if you have any movie suggestions or want to tell us your thoughts on this movie, feel free to shoot us an email or DM at BTST podcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode and join us on Thursday where we will be covering Tick, Tick, Boom. I look forward to it. But until then, I'm Sean. And I'm Catherine. And this has been another episode of Been There, Seen That. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.